The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 35 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, as always, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at CSHUB.com. So, great show last week with John Moran. Uh, senior product manager over at DF Labs. He's here on the show last week to talk about incident response automation and where the industry is going with SOAR technologies. It was a great show. Got a lot of great feedback. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to the interview, check it out. John Moran, senior product manager of DF Labs, appearing on episode number 34 of Task Force 7 Radio. I would definitely check it out if I were you. So don't forget, you can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out. Task Force 7 Radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please, please don't forget to subscribe. So we have a great show for you tonight. John Frazzini, the founder and CEO of Secure Systems Integration Corporation, will be on the air with us tonight. John brings more than 20 years' experience as a cyber risk innovator to his role as president and CEO of SSIC. So I've known John for a long time. We're pretty good friends. He has got a ton of risk experience in the cybersecurity space. He specializes in areas like cybercrime investigations and cyber threat intelligence. He does artificial intelligence-based security applications and cyber attack simulation technologies. And a while back, he caught the entrepreneurial bug, which, you know, he's never in a sense, he's been creating new products to solve some of the cybersecurity industry's biggest challenges. So John and I have a lot in common when it comes to our careers. Prior to embarking on his entrepreneurial journey, John served as a United States Secret Service agent. So at the Secret Service, John was responsible for the agency's Washington, D.C. Electronic Crimes Task Force under the USA Patriot Act. John was also an investigator for the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, where he focused on emerging Internet-based crimes, systemic government program fraud, and criminal exploitation of technology. So John runs out his accomplishments as a senior fellow alumnus of the GW Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. So John and I, we're going to be talking about how the cybersecurity industry has evolved over time, but most importantly, how cybersecurity is colliding with the insurance industry to create a totally new cyber insurance market. This is one of the hottest topics going, folks. You're going to want to tune in to the entire episode tonight, and I'm going to dedicate most of the episode to John and what he has to say, because I want to take advantage of the opportunity uh, that he's here while I can. So he's a really busy guy, and it wasn't easy scheduling him for this show tonight. We're really lucky to have him, so stay tuned. None other than John Frazzini coming up on the second and third segments of the show. But first, some cyber news and analysis. 
So does everyone remember back in September of 2015 when President Obama stood up and announced to the world at a joint news conference with the president of China that the countries of China and the United States have both agreed that neither government would support or conduct cyber-enabled theft of intellectual property. Of course, this was to the collective roar of laughter by every cybersecurity professional in the universe. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't believe you sat up there and made those statements with a straight face. Like anyone thought the Chinese government wasn't just going to stop what they're doing 24-7 hacking operations that they have, it's going to shut it down against the United States because Obama said, pretty please, you know, please don't do that to us anymore. I mean, give me a break. I mean, they, they were, they've been doing this relentlessly to become the most powerful nation on earth for a very long time. That's right. It's in their comprehensive national strategy, the theft of intellectual property, that is, to give Chinese corporations a competitive advantage over American corporations and become the, the world's lone superpower. And it's working like a charm. It's working like a charm for them. I mean, why are they going to stop? Has anyone taken a look at the largest companies in the world over the last 20 years or so? China has three out of the top four largest companies in the global 500. And they're second to the United States in the number of global companies on the list with 109 compared to the United States, who has 133 companies in the global 500. Now, the next closest country is Japan with only 51. That's right. Just 51, right? That's the third. That's the closest next to China after the United States. China, the next closest is Japan, right? So, do you know how many companies China had in the global 500 in just 2010? Take a guess. Take a guess. Right now, just think to yourself. Well, you know, they got they have 109 now in 2017. How many did they have just seven years ago? Any idea? 47. That's right. 47. So we're going to, you, you want me to believe, right, that the Chinese went from 47 companies in the global 500 in 2010 to 109 in the global 500 in 2017, an increase of like 62 companies, I think it's about 132% or something like that, in only seven years. Are you kidding me? Because that's what's going on. According to a 2017 report, by the United States Trade Representative, right? Chinese theft of American IP currently cost the United States between $225 billion to $600 billion annually. That's right. $225 to $600 billion annually. And of course, that estimate came out after President Obama sat down with the Chinese president and said, you know, can you pretty please, pretty please stop stealing from my country, please? Go, you know, please stop taking our futures away from us. And then the Chinese president, of course, said, yeah, yeah, of course I will. I, 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 I pinky swear. Pinky swear. I will never do it again. I'll never do it again. Give me a break. Give me a break. The lost estimates that I just mentioned in the billions, they're annual. Those, those are annual estimates. That's every year, people. Every year they're stealing that from you. I mean, so let's just say the average is around 400 billion, right? Let's just cut it down the middle. He said 225, 600 billion. Let's just go right down the middle, 400 billion dollars, right? If they steal an average of 400 billion dollars of a year, right, and an IP theft, right, over or just let's just say let's call it an even 10-year period. I mean, they're stealing four trillion dollars in the last 10 years, four trillion, and that's just from American companies, right? They're stealing our IP. They are stealing your trade secrets, our trade secrets. They're stealing our technology secrets. They're stealing our money, our children's futures. They're not inventing anything when they do this, folks. It's not like they're being really innovative or anything other than innovative at stealing. Right? They're, they're not creating any technologies. They're not, they're, it's out of control, and no one cares. They hardly even you know, think about it. It's, it's hardly even spoken about. It's mentioned on the TV. I see it on the news once in a while. You know. No one really cares. No one really cares. And I see these guys running around Silicon Valley sometimes. You know, you know what I'm talking about. The globalists, the, guy, the guys who hate America. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Let's, I don't want to get into the politics of things, but you know, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And you're talking about the, the oh, I was talking to a kid the other day, and he said, I want to work for you know IBM, and I want to work for this company. And they said, Well, I got news for you. The best company in this sector is in China, and the best some company in that sector is in China. Give me a break, okay? Give me a break. Everyone needs to wake up. 
And when they conveniently forgot about the $4 trillion in IP theft over the last 10 years that we lost, that we all of a sudden have selective amnesia about when it comes to Chinese innovation and how great they are and how much we hate America, right? So I know, I know there's, there's the, the, those guys who listen to me out there. I know there's someone out there, the American haters, who are saying right now, hey, give me a break. We do the same thing to them. Well, I got news for you. We don't, okay? We don't do the same thing to them in this space, Okay. The Chinese steal IP to give their private and state-owned companies the information so they could cheat, so they could cheat against our companies, so they can have an unfair competitive advantage against American companies. It's not a fair competition out there, and it hasn't been fair for decades. They could care less about what's right or wrong. They want to dominate the world, and they don't care what anybody says about it. So when, when's the last time the United States government came knocking on your door to give you intellectual secrets that increased your company's profits tenfold. I'll tell you when. Never. When is the last time the G showed up at your dev shop and gave you the schematics of a product that pushed the maturity of your operations ahead generations? I'll tell you when. Never. When is the last time Uncle Sam gave you a ring and said, hey, man, why don't you just come down to D.C. where they have the entire strategy of your top three competitors that we want to float by you, and then while we're at it, let's grab some surf and turf over the ocean air just to make things, you know, make it a good night. We don't want to be a wasted trip. I'll tell you when. Never. And then there's this article this week or last week about, about the Chinese hacking us again, and this time it's, it's, it's on the government side. It's an article by Helene Cooper last week out of the Washington Post that says, China's stolen sensitive data related to naval warfare from the computers of a Navy contractor, and the breach occurred this year. Like, it just happened within the last few months. I mean, where's the outrage? Where is it? Like, where's the hundreds of thousands of letters to Congress and the White House demanding this be stopped? Demanding an end to this, right? Now, the, the victim company, which wasn't identified in the article, it, it, supposedly it said that they were doing work for the Naval Undersea Warfare Center, which is based in Newport, Rhode Island, who was allegedly working on a Navy submarine and underwater programs contract. So, great, it was working for the G, it wasn't a private company, and it, it doesn't exactly, it's not apples to apples, but what I was just talking about, and I know the conversation gets really complex from here, because... This hack was against the government, right? It wasn't against the private agency. It was a government subcontractor. And there are going to be people out there to say, well, in this case, you know, we do the same thing to them. And I get that, okay? And I understand that that's out there. I'm not going to speak to that at all uh, myself uh, just because of my past uh, job and, and, and what I do. So I'm not going to talk about that at all. But I understand that it's out there. It's in the newspapers and everything. But then there's trade. There's North Korea. There's the Chinese military expansion into these disputed islands in the South China Sea. There's all kinds of issues. I mean, it gets really complex, it gets into a very complex discussion, and the dialogue sort of gets into a lot of different things when we talk about how do we negotiate and get them to really stop happening, you know, doing this to us instead of just going in and saying, oh, Joe, pretty please stop doing this and give me a break. I don't, I don't have time to get into the whole issue today because I want to save as much time as I can for John, but I promise you we're going to get talking about this issue a lot. We're going to get talking about this a lot, and we're going to start bringing this to light because it's out of control and something needs to be done. So we're going to take a quick break here in a second, but before I do, I want to talk about account takeover attacks here for a minute. That's right, account takeover attacks. So these types of attacks, they've become extremely lucrative for cyber organized crime groups and no one, and I mean no one, is exempt from these types of attacks. I mean, cyber criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain by pilfering financial or personally identifiable information, commonly referred to as PII in the cyber industry, directly or by selling access to these accounts on the underground markets that the average consumer really has no idea about. They don't have no idea some of these places even exist. So many times phishing attacks are the main attack vector that the bad guys use to try to take over your account. So, you know, phishing, you know, when someone sends you an email, it looks like it's from someone you know, but it really isn't. It's really from a bad guy trying to get you to click on a link or click on an attachment that installs malware on your system. Well, SpyCloud is fighting the good fight against account takeover attacks. Now, this company, SpyCloud, is the cybersecurity company that helps you automate customer ATO prevention. That's right, folks. SpyCloud, their solution is sophisticated but simple at the same time. Now, it works this way. SpyCloud allows you to implement easy-to-use APIs into your current application to identify when your user's credentials have been exposed in the underground. So when a user's email and password combination matches a previous exposure in their database, your company's system can reset their password proactively, thereby averting a successful ATO attack on your consumer. 
The spy cloud solution helps you helps companies combat new account fraud, loss of revenue, brand damage, spam, and much, much more. It's proactive cybersecurity, folks. So this is why I encourage you to go to spycloud.com. Go to www.spycloud.com slash TF7. That's www.spycloud.com slash TF7 to check your exposure on your email credentials. So when you go to www.spycloud.com slash TF7, and you don't have to be a business to do this, folks. This is for anyone listening to Task Force 7 Radio. Spycloud.com slash TF7. Put your email address into the box to see if your email credentials have been compromised in the cybersecurity underground. And it's completely free of charge. It's free of charge, right? That's right. It's free of charge for Task Force 7 listeners. It's totally free. Uh, Man, I did it. I did it. I got a lot of interesting uh, feedback on my email addresses and all the domains that I put in there. So the results were very interesting. That's www.spycloud.com slash TF7. Enter your email address in the box and click check your exposure to see if your email credentials have been compromised in the cybersecurity underground. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. So we're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the president and CEO of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, John Frazzini, coming right up after these short messages. Whatever you do... Don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, founder and CEO of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, John Frazzini. John, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you, George. Thanks for the invitation. So, look, you've had a front seat row related to the emergence of cybersecurity around the globe. And you've been a Secret Service agent. You've been a successful security entrepreneur. I think you worked on the Hill a little bit when you were in the Secret Service, too. Lots of experience here. What's been the most striking observation you have related to the way that the security industry has evolved over time? What do you see? Yeah, you know, what's, what's, it, what's been interesting to me, George, related to the evolution of the industry is how when I first, when I first got into it, 
uh, wearing more of a government hat, right? Law enforcement, national security government hat. We're talking about the mid to late 1990s here. Um, when the security issue started to be presented, everybody seemed to be looking for a silver bullet. And they wanted to, you know, they were seeking to solve a problem, right? So the solutions that were coming forward, the technologies that were coming forward, everything was geared towards stopping bad stuff from happening. And then once the silver bullet was developed, then, then we would not have a cybersecurity issue anymore. And so in the early days, you know, I saw that as, kind of an interesting um, uh, situation because, you know, as we sit here 20 years later, let's say, um, we all know that, you know, there are no silver bullets and the problem hasn't been solved. But the evolution of the industry, for me, the origins were, were all about solving a problem, getting rid of the nuisance of cybersecurity so that we could go on in our daily lives without the burden of, of having to think about it. And so I think that, you know, for me, one of the one of the interesting things that I've seen over 20 years is how everybody is seeking to solve the problem and, and, and the problem just persists, right? So the challenge in the future becomes how do you, how do you incorporate that reality into, into, into our daily lives? So you, you, just like a lot of other people, seem to be suggesting yes. that there's been a lot of blocking and tackling going on in the industry over the years, right? And so we talk, that's what we talk about on this show all the time. That's probably why this show exists, because we all know the problem hasn't been solved, and it just sort of keeps getting worse. We're not pounding the panic drum here uh, by any means. We don't do that on this show, right? And I know a lot, of, a lot of people go out and, you know, pound the, the, the panic drum and hit the alarm and say, oh my God, you know, the, the sky is falling. But Things, things are sort of getting gradually worse in a lot of different respects. So what do we need to do to sort of get a handle on the challenges that we face today related to these security threats? Yeah, what's, what's interesting about that is, you know, the blocking and tackling that you reference, that, that's exactly how I've seen it, right? There's been a lot of blocking and tackling, but there really has been no game plan, right? There's no strategy that really has been universally accepted. You, you may get universal acceptance, for example, on a technical level that vulnerability scanning is important and everybody can collectively shake their heads and say, probably a good idea to scan for vulnerabilities. And, and, but you're, you, you can't even get agreement on whether or not, you know, patching various obvious holes, you know, are something that everybody should do on a universal basis. And so the blocking and tackling is there, but, you know, you can't even get um, a broad consensus from a strategic level as to what, what needs to be done uh, beyond that. So I, I, I've, I see it this way, right? I see the cybersecurity industry's evolution to date, including a broad, a, 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 a broad component of it even today, and, and, I, and I break it down in two ways, right? There, there's, the, there's the technical implementation of security technologies that everybody can universally say are good, right? Uh, endpoint solutions probably should be doing that, right? Everybody can agree that that's a good idea, right? No arguments there. I reference vulnerability scanning, some of the basic blocking and tackling stuff. But then what you've, what you've seen as a result of the implementations of various um, technologies, including the data aggregation technologies like Splunk or other um, security event management platforms, the old Arc site, the, the, the modernized Splunk application, right? Data aggregation points to try to get a better sense of security incidents. And so a lot of those are they're technically driven solutions. And what I see is a push for, you know, better performance in technology, but you don't have the game plan. So I, I break it down this way as it relates to, to, to executive management of security. You know, I, I see this, I've seen the emergence of the CISO position uh, since the 1990s take, take an interesting um, uh, shape, right? Where you have what I call, you know, little C CISOs. And, and those are the technologists that are seeking better, performance out of, you know, security technologies as a measurement of success. And then you have the evolution of what I call the capital C or the executive minded CISO who is trying to intersect those technical components and try to um, communicate that at a business layer, right? So, 
you know, the lowercase c in the CISOs that are technologists that want to seek um, measurement related to technology performance, you know, they like shiny objects, they like to buy new tools, they like to deploy technologies because they think it's interesting. Um, the uppercase C's, the, the chief information security officers that have an executive vantage point, they're seeking ways for cost reduction in security, aligning security with the business, right? And that requires that game planning that, that kind of we're talking about right here. You, you mentioned in your question, you know, there's a lot of blocking and tackling, but, you know, from my perspective, there's no game plan. And so, you know, I, I see a shift where um, the reliance on technology is, is, is peaked. There's only so much you can do with technology implementation, and it's time for, for folks in security to start getting smart and connect what they're doing with the business. And if they don't do that, you know, we're just running in place. So you mentioned, you mentioned one thing that I, I want to ask you about. You mentioned the, the lack of a comprehensive strategy, and it doesn't seem to be, you know, uh, very collect, there's no there's no collective strategy nationwide. I mean, do you think that hurts us? I mean, the administration really hasn't come out with something that's comprehensive that everybody's gotten on board with to say, okay, but all our ships are sort of sailing in the same direction, and this is how we're going to attack this problem. This is how we're going to put our collective skills, our collective talent, and all our collective capabilities together to defend our critical infrastructure. I and mean, how much does that hurt the industry in your mind? Oh, that's that's a great question, George. I, I think I think there's a there's a there's a huge problem there. I, I remember I think it was back in uh, what was it two thousand and three. I'll remember this. And and we 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 have a guy that we both know in the industry for a very long time, uh, Amit Yaron. Right, Amit was a guy who became the first cybersecurity czar, you know, if you will, uh, in in the United States government. It's it's just after the Department of Homeland Security was created. And he, he and others from the, the newly created Department of Homeland Security, um, we all, everybody goes to San Jose, California, and he gets up on the stage and he rates the collective government's efforts in cybersecurity as a D minus. I'll never forget that, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the, audience was, the audience was filled with intelligence agency operators, law enforcement personnel, Silicon Valley venture capitalists, right? And there was hundreds of people in this uh, ballroom auditorium in San Jose, California. And he gets right up there on stage and gives everybody a, a, a D minus, right? And this gets to your question, George. Like, I, I, you know, you're asking, how, how does this hurt the, the collective efforts? Well, I mean, I, I, if I had to be objective, I would say if, if I was the guy taking the stage like a meet, Iran did back in 2003 and made that proclamation and gave that grade of D minus, I would say we're maybe at a D plus, right? I mean, there is no, forget about administrations, right? Because we've, since 2003, we've had a couple different administrations. We had the Bush administration, the, the Obama administration. Now we have the new administration, right? Right. And so I, I really don't think it's political. I, I think what you've seen is a collective inability for government leadership to be relevant on this topic. And that needs to be recognized. In fact, I have oftentimes, you know, articulated and, and pushed for a, a private sector um, initiative that connects with government to help gov government um, in its efforts to, to bring clarity on these topics. But, you know, the inside, the government is tough, right? You and I both used to work there. There's an inside out view of the world typically that permeates. In this instance, however, you know, the leadership, the innovation, the game planning that we're talking about comes from the private sector. I haven't seen very effective um, collaboration between the government and private sector. There's a lot of stuff on the, uh, on the surface. It's superficial. Um, and we've all seen that over the course of the last 15 or 20 years. But the reality is that Meet Yaron's D minus to me today is a D plus. Uh, the government had, the, the government's been, the government's just been unable to come up with a strategy that makes any sense. And that, that runs across multiple agencies. It runs across multiple administrations. If you really look at it, most people who work for the government do so for very short periods of time and then end up in the private sector. Most of them exacerbated. Um, with the frustrations they feel because they just were not able to make pro progress on this topic. So the core of your question is, how is this, how, how, is this hurting? 
You know, the answer is it is it is right. It's the ineffective ability for the government to to somehow provide clarity as to what our national strategy should be is a is a deficiency that should not be overlooked. In fact, that includes a very major component of what we see today, whereby I think most major cyber attacks that affect society, whether it's denial of service attacks or it's data breach activity across the spectrum is much of it's being state sponsored. And so here we have, um, you know, private sector America trying to, to defend foreign nations from breaking in and di- disrupting their systems. And, and frankly, the government has been effectively asleep at the wheel in my opinion. So a couple of things in the media that's been uh, really uh, I guess resonating with a lot of cybersecurity professionals is that the, the White House has eliminated the position of cybersecurity czar on the National Security Council. And so uh, how do you think that has affected our security posture? I mean, uh, I saw some articles this week where they were kind of really saying that oh, all of a sudden now since this position doesn't exist, you know, we're really exposed. And you know, I think that's, that's an over-exaggeration. But obviously, cybersecurity professionals, in my mind, would rather have the position than not. I certainly would. But I mean, what kind of effect does it really have on the overall you know, movement towards actually getting a comprehensive strategy in place and getting all the, the communication lines in place that we need to, to be where we need to be? Well, I, I think what you're seeing related to that is more of a philosophical um, approach that's different. If you take a look at what's going on with OMB and not to get too, not to get too wonky with your audience here, right? The office of management and budget, it, it's who allocates, you know, budgetary priorities and establishes, you know, through the white house and working with Congress, how we spend money and handle issues, right? Um, they're looking to advance more of a private sector, free enterprise approach to cybersecurity, right? They, so I think, you know, as the white house may be, eliminating a position, whereas I don't necessarily think that's a good thing on paper. It certainly doesn't make for good headlines. It makes it look like, you know, our right. government's not taking cybersecurity serious. Right. What I would say underneath the hood, what I see is an effort um, within, within the budgetary arm of our administration where they're trying to bring, um, you know, the effective measurement of security, kind of trying to understand what the ROI is, how to make you know, improvements to security uh, from a business perspective as, as taking place. And so those, those, those shouldn't be diminished just because a certain position is, is, not, is not being filled. Now, the other thing that I'll say as well, uh, this is ultimately where I think, you know, the future of the whole industry is going, right? You know, there, is, there has been a vacuum of leadership, whether a position's been filled or not in the U.S. government. My comments earlier you know, to get to a D plus, you know, really it needs to be more than just filling a position. There needs to be a strategy. There needs to be a game plan. There needs to be, be a way to incorporate the dynamic ability for the private sector in this country to, to affect change on this topic. I think, I, think it's, I think I'm worried less about whether a position is filled on the National Security Council to make us all feel good that somebody cares about security and finding a way for the government to lead initiatives that give the power and voice back to the commercial sector, the entrepreneurial spirit that exists in this country to help, help lead a public private partnership. And I think if that, that that's currently, there's an imbalance there. And I, and I think it's, it's less about a position and more about a mentality. I'd rather see, I'd rather see the government saying we need help, and put together a consortium of, of executives and professionals that have been at the forefront to come back to the government and say, this is what the game plan should look like from our vantage point. And you don't see much of that in the government. So I'm not worried about the politics of it. I just think there needs to be a philosophical shift where the government should seeking a lot more um, guidance from the commercial sector as to how we can collectively solve, solve this. So before we were talking about some blocking and tackling, you were brought up the CISOs and, 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 and how they're reacting to things and how the CISO position sort of evolved over time. And I'm always talking about cybersecurity and thinking of it as a business. And so it sounds to me like you see a difference between the security effectiveness measured from a technical and a business perspective. But, you know, the cybersecurity technology industry keeps growing, as you know, at, at such a rapid pace. And it just seems like the technical arms race is on hyperspeed. I mean, what, 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 what say you about that? 
Well, yeah. So this is, this is great stuff, right? So you know, for, from my vantage point, security is the problem, right? It's, it's not the solution. And I think oftentimes people in the cybersecurity industry uh, engage in, and, and, and whether this is conscious or subconscious, they engage in the, the, the FUD dynamic, right? Advancing fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, and, and that is what's driving spend, you know, organizations today still want to proclaim that they're spending more on cybersecurity. Um, there was one point in time, I think about two years ago, where, where uh, Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase, after an incident that took place there, got, out, got up and was telling everybody that at some point they're going to be spending a billion dollars on cybersecurity. And, and that rhetoric and that narrative, you know, is still, I think, conventional wisdom in corporate America. Nobody wants to say we're going to spend less on cybersecurity. So I think that's creating a bubble dynamic, right? Where the, the spending without ROI, which does not happen in other areas of business, is being tolerated by business executives that are trying to manage the optics of cybersecurity. And so those budgets are growing. You know, you've got uh, companies flooding the cybersecurity industry. There's like something like a thousand of technology providers today, something like that. And the reality is, I believe in the future, uh, business will eventually start seeking a measurement of security effectiveness. They're going to start measuring how security deployed is, is, is helping manage or suppress risk within an organization from a financial perspective. And so the arms race is continuing, but I, but I think it's a bubble. I think eventually the CFO's voice is going to start taking shape you're going to start to see cost reduction initiatives around security. When, when the dust settles, I think it's, you know, you're going to see a, a, the cybersecurity market um, it will be exposed to be in, in a bit of a bubble. And I, and I think, you know, business process improvement, measuring effectiveness of programs against business goals is going to start becoming the norm. And so the arms race, I think, will slow down. And the business-minded uh, folks within corporate America will start getting a handle on security. And, and, I, th and I think that is what uh, will affect um, the greatest amount of change is the, is the, the fact, just like in the housing market in, in 2008, the idea that the home prices were going to continue to grow forever, indefinitely, the idea that the cybersecurity industry is going to grow indefinitely with, no, with limited underlying value being realized um, I think there's a, I think there's an argument to make that uh, there's a correlation between those two bubble dynamics. So it seems to me like this has been going on for years though, right? So we were talking about this earlier when we first started, you know, uh, the, the segment and it seems to me that this has just been going on for so long and people are waiting for this change to happen. When does this change take hold and, and how does the, the security industry work after it does? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've been watching something very interesting. Um, I'm watching and I've been studying um, how the insurance industry has been getting involved with managing risk related to the cyber uncertainty that we're talking about. And I, I remember back in the late 90s, I was attending many national security environment uh, meetings, uh, interagency meetings within the Washington, D.C. national security apparatus where the emergence of the cybersecurity dynamic was starting to become realized, right? Where, you know, in 1998, then President Clinton, you know, uh, drafted a presidential directive that basically said information, information systems present national security challenges to us, right? That gave way to what we all know of the ISAC, the information sharing um, organizations within various sectors, finance, transportation, healthcare, right? So, you know, in the late 90s, you started seeing the government from a national security perspective could communicate that, whoop, looks like about 85% of, of our critical assets in this country are owned by the private sector. What do, we, what do we do about that? And at the same time, what's interesting about that is I started seeing representatives from insurance companies show up. And AIG and Chubb, I'll never forget, in fact, just a few months ago, I was going through some old business files, and I actually kept a file that with the material that these insurance companies were bringing to these national security 
forums because I was, I, was, I was perplexed but yet fascinated by why they were attending these forums. And the reason is, um, the reason is, is because the insurance industry has been a part of stabilizing all aspects of society, if you go back in history, um, with, with a wide variety of different types of topics from, from what we know now today, today to be the auto industry or the housing industry or medical malpractice. You know, you under, if you think about insurance, it almost sounds somewhat arcane and boring, but the insurance industry has provided resiliency and stability in all aspects of society where risk is involved. And, and I started watching that from the late 90s evolved till today. And so when, when you talk about when, when you ask the question is like, when do I think change will be affected? I think it's when the insurance sector starts getting a handle on how to financially model this risk and bring stability back to business. I think that will change the cybersecurity industry. It'll provide the metrics that everybody will then be measured by. And the bubble, I think, will, will be exposed at that time. So I see the convergence of the cybersecurity and the insurance industry being a very interesting phenomenon that's taking place right now. And, and I don't think the security industry is going to be able to continue to kind of, you know, wag the dog related to, you know, dictating to corporate America what needs to be spent uh, when corporate America just sees that as extracting value from the market, right? So market efficiencies will be brought forward. The security industry will change, in my opinion, when the insurance industry is able to absorb more of the financial exposure related to what we're talking about. So I see that as, as the inflection point of how that industry will change. And that is by the emergence of the cyber insurance markets. So I want to get into the cybersecurity uh, insurance industry right after the break. We got to take a, a few uh, short minutes here to hear from our sponsors. So, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from John Frazzini right after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the founder and CEO of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, John Frazzini. So, John, we were, we were talking about the cybersecurity secure, uh, uh, insurance industry and how that's evolving over time and how it's actually uh, came to be sort of a very impactful uh, marketplace in the cybersecurity uh, space. So, in the last segment, you brought up how the cybersecurity and, and insurance industries are converging right now. And actually, they're actually colliding in, in some respects. Yeah, how, how will this change things as we go forward? What I, yeah, so what I've been observing related to this is something that I find interesting, right? So the insurance industry is seeking to make financial sense 
of how bad things happen related to cyber incidents, right? In effect, what they've been doing is reverse engineering where financial impact uh, resides across the various categories of cyber incidents, right? So oftentimes the cybersecurity industry sees, as we were talking about earlier in the program, the cybersecurity industry sees the cybersecurity challenge as technical oftentimes, right? And it's that technical evaluation that drives uh, substantial components of, of the security market. And I've been watching that. We've talked about that earlier. What, at the same time, what the, what the insurance industry has been doing is been trying to model the financial exposure organizations uh, will, will um, likely be exposed to related to their environments. If you think about it this way, it's, it's not dissimilar from how we, all of us buy car insurance, auto insurance, homeowners insurance, business insurance, how um, the, the medical community buys malpractice insurance. What the insurance industry basically does is, is, it, is it models financial exposure and then is able to offer insurance project, uh, products that help bring stability to markets. That's, that's, you know, if you didn't have car insurance, how many people would go out and, and buy cars and take the risk of damaging a vehicle, right? If you didn't have insurance, um, it'd be many people would likely not take the risk of driving a lot, right? Because they would be on the hook for the accident that they got involved with. And so the insurance market, one of the examples I like to give in the auto industry, it really gave this, provided the stability for, for the industrial auto industry to actually explode, right? If you didn't have the insurance backdrop, um, there'd be uh, instability in, in the financial commitments people would make towards transportation. So I see the same thing happening with, um, it's, a, it's a lot more complex, right, than driving around your neighborhood. Uh, but I see the insurance industry seeking to do the same thing. They're, as I mentioned earlier, they're reverse engineering where financial impact resides across the spectrum of, how adverse things affect organizations in, in cyber, and they're seeking to build insurance products to bring uh, stability to uh, corporate America's operations, right? And so I see the insurance industry as, as evolving. I would say there's a, there's, it's at its infancy right now from my vantage point, if you look at market sizes, but as they get better at doing that, I see a transformational shift, not just in insurance, but in cybersecurity. So you, you recently collaborated with the U.S. Embassy in London on cyber risk series that explores the convergence of the security and insurance industries. And during your presentation, you referenced certain historical instances where the, the insurance industry specifically has transformed markets. And you were just mentioning how this is going to happen not only in insurance, but in the cybersecurity markets as well. So can you give us some examples in, in, about this transformation in both these industries and, and what does this have to do with cybersecurity and managing cybersecurity risk? Yeah. And that, so early in my comments earlier, I talked about, you know, some dynamics that I see of how the insurance industry is, is interfacing with the, what I call the cybersecurity challenge. Right. And we talked about what's taking place from an insurance underwriting perspective to seek ways to financial model cyber risk. But, you know, the events that we did at the U.S. Embassy in London with, with, with the ambassador over there were quite instructive. And the reason why we were doing them in London, as everybody knows, it's, it's the epicenter of the insurance industry, right? So in London, it's the birthplace and it's the epicenter of the insurance sector. So uh, they're keen uh, to focus on this because they're insurance orientated. So they look at cybersecurity through a uh, quite deeply look at the cybersecurity issue through an insurance lens. And so the, the U.S. Embassy was bringing forward a dialogue with security insurance executives to discuss the interface between the two industries that we've been talking about. And from, you know, some of the, uh, you know, I gave some examples related to auto insurance earlier and how, how the insurance industry is seeking to conduct the financial modeling that helps understand cyber risk as well. But if you take a look historically at things, you know, just, just kind of as, as an interesting um, uh, historical segments, you know, and, and not, to, not to bore the audience here, but, you know, I, I presented some interesting things, right? And it has to do with how the insurance industry has evolved over time. And I used kind of this historical narrative to, to have 
people conceptualize how the same historical journey related to other industries are in fact, is in fact going to be the same um, result and journey that we're on with cybersecurity. And, and, and a couple of those are this, right? And, and this is kind of like history. So for those that are interested in history, this will be interesting. Hopefully, George, for the rest of, for the rest of your audience, they're not bored by this. But in just a minute or two, I'll give you a couple examples, right? Okay. So in the 1600s, right, 1666, I really found this interesting. There was the Great Fire of London, right? And, that was the, the, and that's where you saw the emergence of the modern property insurance industry. You know, from a housing perspective back in the 1600s, uh, the houses, houses were plagued with fire. And so just like the auto example I gave earlier, uh, there needed to be a mechanism for people to make investments in housing or homes to protect those homes from risk of fire. And so the, the, the emergence and the, the genesis of the modern day property insurance marketplace uh, was born and it had to do with, with how to financially model risk, right? So the example there is there needed to be a way to provide an insurance product that could provide financial stability um, in the face of risk, right? Um, in the 1680s, just shortly thereafter, this is an interesting thing. I was in London, so I was speaking to mostly British, British uh, attendees. Um, Edward Lloyd, we all, we all know Lloyd, right? Lloyd, Lloyd's of London is the, the, let's just say, the father of insurance and the father of insurance marketplace. Everything that functions in, in insurance today interfaces with, with what they call the Lloyd's syndicates out of London. So you can't buy insurance today without the insurance industry's backdrop that's been built in, in the insurance markets in London uh, through what they call the Lloyd syndicates. So not, not to get into too much boring insurance speak, um, that was founded um, um, in a coffee house. And it was related to merchants coming forward seeking insurance products to, to financially protect merchant shipping. So you have, in the 1600s, you have property insurance being built. In the 1600s, you have business leaders seeking insurance pro products that could help insure the transport of goods, you know, over the English Channel and, and around various parts of Europe at the time. And so insurance products were built to provide stability to commercial markets, in that case, shipping. Uh, fast forward, you know, fast forward, uh, call it a, a century, a hundred years. You had, you know, Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia build the first ever um, um, insurance entity. And it was called the Philadelphia Contributorship for the Insurance of Houses from Loss by Fire. And it warned against certain ha hazards. And this is important, warned against certain hazards. And they would refuse to insure anybody that built houses out of wood because, of course, wood burns. And so from a historical perspective, if you think about what the insurance industry has done since the emergence of modern insurance back in the 1600s, 1800s in Europe and in the, in the now United States with what Benjamin Franklin was doing, most people think about Benjamin Franklin and the light bulb, electricity, I should say. They don't think about him as, as, as the, uh, the father of modern insurance in the United States, but that's one of the things he did as well. The point is they warned against certain hazards and they refused to insure risk of fire if your house was built out of wood. So this is always interesting to me because this is exactly what the modern day cyber insurance marketplaces are seeking to do. They're seeking to underwrite the risks, right, and provide the framework for everyone to understand where financial exposure resides. And then as a result, they won't be providing insurance for the highly risky environments. So what is that going to do in the cybersecurity industry? If I, if I pull this full circle, and George, hopefully I, hopefully I haven't lost your audience with my, historic, my, my, my history lesson here. But if you think about what insurance does and you think about it in context to cyber insurance, the same things are happening, right? The cyber, the insurance carriers and insurance brokers are underwriting the cyber risk because they're modeling the financial components of it 
And once that stabilizes, which it hasn't right now, it's in its infancy, like I talked about earlier, once the insurance industry, you know, finds the ultimate mechanism to provide that financial backdrop to functioning in modern day society through, as you talked about earlier, uh, digital transformation, right? That is going to have a tremendous effect on all things cybersecurity because the insurance industry will be providing the guidance to organizations to operate in a safe and sound manner, and they will be offering the products for organizations to transfer risk into insurance products. And that is a that is something that is at its infancy. I find it fascinating, and I ultimately think it's transformational in terms of where the cyber in, security industry will no longer be looked on for leadership, and will be more looked towards uh, following. Will be more of a put into a conforming position. In other words, an organization will then stop saying to the cybersecurity professionals, what should we do? And the executive leadership will say, our insurance company thinks we should do this, go do it. And so you're going to see kind of a transfer of how that communication dynamic takes place in organizations. So is this why London has sort of become the epicenter of cyber insurance? Because it just seems like they're the epicenter of all the cyber insurance marketplace that's going on. I mean, is this why... London, basically the story that you just told. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean does it have any, any historical connection there in terms of, you know, the way people think in the evolution of insurance? Absolutely. So th- this is why I brought up the examples, right? The, the examples are such that I believe the insurance marketplace will ultimately dictate cybersecurity. That's what I'm describing here. Just like the insurance industry dictates how houses, what houses ultimately can be built. Because if you don't follow certain underwriting principles, you can't get insurance, therefore a builder won't build your house and you won't buy it, right? Same thing that goes into when we buy auto insurance. At some certain point, the insurance industry decides what safety mechanisms, the government contributes to this, but ultimately it's the insurance industry that decides what safety mechanisms are required in order for you to buy affordable insurance, right? If we don't have airbags, if we don't have modern uh, safety mechanisms in automobiles, you know, in today's world, your insurance would skyrocket, right? If the consequence right. of an accident, it's the, the financial components of an accident exploded, your insurance premiums would, ex- would explode, right? So it's the insurance industry that will lead the cybersecurity industry in the future, I believe. Because once they s- start standardizing on the principles of how to measure the cyber risk and assess the cybersecurity infrastructure of an organization, once that happens, that will ultimately become gospel for organizations to start managing against. They're going to want affordable insurance. They're going to want to transfer risk, and they're going to take guidance from their insurance brokers and their insurance carriers, and the cybersecurity industry will be, be less relevant in the dialogue related to the issue moving forward. That's my, that's my view of where the marketplace is going. London happens to be the epicenter of the insurance markets. Of course, we have some of the largest insurance companies in the world, AIG, Chubb, that are based here in the United States and others. But for the most part, in terms of how the insurance industry will impact society related to cybersecurity, um, you know, it's a one-stop shop in the London insurance marketplace. And so anyone interested in the cybersecurity industry in learning more about what's taking place in cyber insurance, there's a lot out there. I would encourage people to learn about what's taking place because ultimately it's going to be more and more relevant in your daily lives if you're a security professional. So let's talk about the impact for a second that you just mentioned. I mean, we're understanding that the cyber insurance industry is in its infancy here. What advancements or initiatives are you seeing in the cyber insurance industry related to cybersecurity, and what does that mean uh, for our space? Well, there's two, as I mentioned earlier, the insurance industry is seeking the ability to, well, they're seeking to reverse engineer the financial exposure that organizations face as a result of cyber incidents. So this is all about economics. It's all about financial impact, right? Mitigating risk, right? That's what we're getting down to. Yeah, mitigating risk from a financial perspective. And so, so what you're seeing is the ability now for the insurance industry, and that's the insurance carriers like an AIG, like others, like insurance brokers like Marsh, Aon, and others, right? They are seeking the ability to help organizations understand their financial exposure. 
So that is taking place and that is starting to be permeate corporate America. And so what's happening beyond that is a little bit um, more at its infancy, but nonetheless very fascinating. The insurance industry is also seeking the ability to take into consideration into its underwriting practices the performance of various security technologies, right? So right now, technology is being sold based on, you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that we talked about earlier for the most part. Not always, but for the most part. Um, people, the corporations deploy technology technologies because they're technologists generally say because you have to. So they're spending certain amounts of money on security. But once the insurance industry starts measuring the cumulative effectiveness of those security technologies, if you have a Fortune 100 company that's, I'm just going to make up numbers, spends $5 million on a security initiative, whatever it happens to be. And this, the, the insurance industry assigns limited value, financial risk mitigation value to the implementation of that project. What do you think the CFO is going to say related to green lighting that project, right? And so security just because, just for security will go away. It'll be more how does this security initiative align with our business goals and actually suppress or mitigate the financial exposure our organization is going to be expecting? That guidance will be coming from insurance brokers and insurance carriers, and the technologists will be left with answering those questions. So all this, all this, but all this depends on the accurate measurement of residual risk in an organization, right? I mean, so how do we get to that so fast? I mean, how, how does someone, an underwriter say, okay, and you see, you mentioned before technologies, but it's also people too, right? I mean, it has to be, I mean, if, if you don't have the right talent in place to, to secure your organization, then that probably has to be taken into effect into your financial exposure that's related to the risk, residual risk that your company is experiencing because you don't either have the, the people or the tools or the processes in place that you should. Oh, absolutely. People are very important, George. I mean, educating and getting skilled people in this, in this topic is critical. And what I'm suggesting is getting those people aligned with understanding what the financial metrics are that drive the business around the risk discussion and how they can incorporate that understanding to what they do from a security perspective is going to be critical. But having said that, you have to have underlying, and, and there's a gap here, right? There's a, there's a huge right. gap of talent right. here. If you can't get the, you know, this gets back to the block, blocking and tackling. What, what, I'm, what I'm not saying here today on this show is that you shouldn't be doing the blocking and tackling. You should be, right? Course, what, right. I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, it's not enough. That's all. So the blocking and tackling must be done. A lot of organizations aren't even doing that. So you can't even get to the game planning that we were talking about earlier, right? So you have to have the people. You have to have the processes. You have to have the technologies all lined up to look at what you're talking about, the residual risk factor, right? So it's like, how do you understand your risk from, from a financial perspective? How do you align your people, processes, and technologies on initiatives that see, seek to suppress or mitigate the financial exposure your organization is going to face? You can't do that unless you have the, met, the financial metrics that help guide that alignment. So your people, your processes, and technologies are effectively operating in a vacuum, but make no right. doubt about it, you need to have skilled people, and there's not enough of them, as you know. You need to have the processes in place. Those are maturing, but not, not to where they should be. And then the technologies, we're talking about that. Some of them are really good, and you need them. Some of them are, as we all talk about, vaporware, and they'll just go away, right? It's the cybersecurity bubble that I talked about earlier. So, How, how hard yeah. is it? How hard is it for these underwriters to assess the residual risk of a company? Well, it, it used to never, it used to not happen, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So, so, so we're at, when I talk right. about it being at, the, at its infancy, it is now possible to measure the residual risk because of the, because of the efforts that the insurance industry is engaging through some, some leadership of specific companies, by the way, but it's trans, the insurance industry is transforming itself as we speak, right? It's not running in place, it's transforming. And, and because they are now able to reverse engineer the financial impact of cyber incidents, which is what we talked about earlier, right? Then you have the ability to uh, then financially measure an organization's residual risk. And then you have the ability to align your people, processes, and technologies on initiatives that can be demonstrated to further suppress 
or reduce your financial exposure. So your residual risk um, um, financial analysis is now possible because the insurance sector is now advancing itself to where it is now getting an understanding of where the financial impact resides, just like in the other industries that we described, auto, home, you know, that when you get underwritten as a driver, they take into consideration a lot of different factors, where you live, what intersections you drive, likely to drive through in a three mile radius, so on and so forth, your driver history, you know, all of the data that drives the underwriting of auto insurance, they have that data. They've re- they've understand the financial exposure associated with, with George driving, right? They know based on where you live, how you drive, what your history is, and all the various underwriting factors. What I'm saying is the insurance industry has is is starting to standardize on that reverse engineering to fully understand those financial elements to cyber risk and that's really hot off the presses stuff this is this is occurring you know kind of in real time it wasn't even available i would say call it 2 years ago so this is this the insurance industry's ability to comprehensively do that even though they've been working on it for you know call it decades right they're, they're starting to get to the point where they have a handle on where financial exposure resides and therefore what can be done to suppress it and insure it against it, which is important. So John, look, I know you got a hard stop and we're a couple minutes over it actually. And, and I appreciate you hanging in there with me to do this and, and taking the time to speak to us. I hope you come back often. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I appreciate it, George. Anytime I enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to uh, coming back. If, uh, if, if you, if your audience finds this interesting, let's keep, let's keep the dialogue going. No, definitely. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you very much. So we've run out of time, folks. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.